You're listening to Strictly Business Podcast with Lindsay Williams. It's Wednesday, so it's time to talk to a portfolio manager from Cape Town. Her name is Joanne Bainham. She's from Sterling Private Wealth. And Joanne, I don't know, I've just been, I mean, apart from being distracted horribly by certain sporting events, I've also been distracted by something I got from an organization called Business Insider the other day that said uh, with the US bond yield going from 175 to 135, which is where it was when they sent it to me, this is a big sign of stagflation. Now, I know what stagflation means. It means a stagnating economy, but at the same time, the terrible thing of having inflation. So they put the two together and make it stagflation. I didn't quite understand why the bond yield would go down. And in other words, the bond price is going up and how that is linked to stagflation. But I thought, well, who better to call than Joanne Bainham on on, on this subject? It's because it's quite complicated. It's awfully complicated. I think the first comment to mention is do I actually believe stagflation is the scenario they're painting? Uh, and right now, I don't. So right now, I don't say, see the world economy sort of stagnating from a growth perspective. Mm. If anything, I think growth is going to continue to rise. What we are noticing, though, is that if you look at the rate of change argument, in other words, the type of growth we're seeing is slowing, but it's still growing. I, I think to believe in the stagflation argument, you have to believe that econ- economic growth is going to start contracting. So, you know, going negative, not just from absolute returns going slower, but actually going negative. And I don't see that at the moment, not with the amount of fiscal spending in the world, not with the amount of monetary policy, and not with the amount of latent demand. I mean, you mentioned earlier watching the football. You know, the world wants to return to normal. I mean, you have to look at these stadiums of people heaving, the masses of heaving, Wimbledon, football, whatever you want to be looking at. People want to get out there and get on with their lives. They want to get returned to normal. Now, admittedly, in the emerging markets, where we haven't had the vaccine rollout program, it's like they've had in the West, that that return to normal is a bit slower, but it's definitely returning to normal in developed markets. I mean, you guys now have, I mean, you have Freedom Day now in the UK. I think 19th of July is finally coming. America's been open for a while. So I'm struggling to believe the growth argument around the stagflation. I think there's a lot of factors behind US Treasuries at the moment, one of them being the Fed continues to buy. So you've got a distorted buyer in that market. You've also got a situation where inflation expectations are falling. And when you look at a number of commodities have been falling in price recently, lumber being probably the most famous of all of them. The one exception, obviously, is oil, but we can discuss that a bit later. Mm. But you are seeing some sort of inflation numbers sort of come off the boil somewhat. And I think the market still believes right now, wrongly or rightly, that inflation is transitory. So that kind of fear when U.S. Treasury started rising because they worried about inflation, I think that's also come out of the market. Um, But to your point about stagflation, yes, that would be a a bad situation. But why would U.S. Treasuries rally in the short term? Because they're saying growth is going to be terrible and ultimately the Fed will raise interest rates and that's why U.S. Treasuries are rising. But but it's not a a scenario that I'm sort of pricing in at the moment. It's very confusing. In fact, it's almost a dichotomy, isn't it? I mean, on the one hand, if commodity prices are rising, that implies good demand, which implies good global GDP growth. On the other hand, stagnation implies exactly stagnation. The opposite. Implies exactly the opposite. So when has there ever been stagflation? I should have asked a historian or asked you to to look it up, but I just can't remember any point. Well, no, there's been in the 70s. In the 70s, we had stagflation because we had mm. the OPEC scenario where oil prices went crazy and then a recession ensued because the Fed then sort of raising rates. So you had the sort of because remember, in, in a, when when oil prices go up, it's mostly the Middle East that benefit. The rest of the world are actually prejudiced by it. 
it's never a good story when oil prices go up. So that's when we do see growth slowing, inflation rising. So I think what people are at the moment a little bit concerned about is what's going on in OPEC. Yes. So I, you would have noticed they, they could not agree on anything at their last meeting. And what we need them to do at the moment is agree on production increases. Because as the world economy opens up, there's greater demand for oil. They need to increase their production quotas because the oil price is moving up quite strongly at the moment. But there is hope on the oil story. As oil prices rise too much, then the shale guys in the U.S. get involved again. So there is some sort of a cap on the oil price, but we're not there at the moment. But I think that's what people are – if you are in the stagflation camp, which I'm not, mm. but if you are – then the higher oil prices would be something you'd be watching and you'd be worried about. Okay, because it would be slower growth, rising prices. Let me Sorry. ask you another question now, because uh, I haven't uh, prepped you on this one. I, I, I threw stagflation at you this morning on a message. I'm going to ask you to answer this conundrum, which I've been mulling over the last 24 hours or so. Let's say that you're, you're a household. All right, which you are, of course, mm -hmm. and you're a household. Mm -hmm. you, and you've got certain things that you have to pay for every month and certain things that you don't have to pay for every month. Let's say that your household uh, goes out to dinner or uh, takeaway uh, twice a month. That's elastic mm -hmm. demand in the economy. In other words, if you decide you can't afford it, you don't need to do it, so you stay at home and you cook. Okay, that's point number one. What about inelastic demand? In a country like South Africa or the United States of America, where people are addicted to cars, you have to take the children to school. You have to go and see your mother-in-law to to make sure she's okay. You have to go to work in the car uh, two days a week, even though uh, it's a shortened week. And the point is you have, to, you have this fixed amount to spend on petrol. And if the petrol price goes up, it doesn't matter. You still have to put petrol in the car. So is a petrol price rise at the core level or the CPI level, consumer price inflation, is it deflationary because it takes money out of your monthly expenditure, which you can't spend on other things, which contributes to inflation? I've never understood this. Can you help me? Do you understand me? Have you fallen asleep? I'm still here. <laughs> I look, I think you bring up some good points. Is it deflationary? If you're arguing from a demand perspective, my, I only have X amount to spend. and you know, I'm spending more on oil than I can spend less on other things. Yes. One could argue that's a deflationary concept. Um, it's only really deflationary if I can't get a wage increase. So that's where people start to worry about rising oil prices. I go to my boss and say, look, I can't live every month. Please, please increase my wages. So, so one of the discussions you and I have every time we talk about inflation is all the other stuff is noise. The only thing that really matters when it comes to inflation is wage increases because that becomes permanent because everything else is transitory. So the oil price goes up, the oil price goes down. And what do they always say about commodities? The solution for higher prices is higher prices because it ultimately leads to people producing more of it. But in a wage environment, once you've had a salary increase, it's very unlikely that they're going to cut your salary in six months' time. And that's when inflation becomes sticky. So back to your argument about oil and is it deflationary, I think in the short term, it hurts your consumption habits because you're forced to cut back. Longer run, what people worry about is the cost of transport to get everything else into the economy pushes everything else up. And at that point, do wage, does wage demand pick up and people say, sorry, I can't live. You need to give me higher wages. So, so that's really, it always comes down to wages. And it also comes down to how long prices stay high for. Because remember as well, inflation is a moving target. It has to keep increasing to be inflationary. Yes. It can't just be a one-source increase and then it's, okay, then you, you reassess what you have to spend. But it's every month that's going through that people say, I can't do this anymore. And, and with the jury's very much out because... Again, you and I have debated this at length, but where it's interesting at the moment, they're getting wage increases at the lower end of the market. 
So people in the services industry, people working in restaurants are getting salary increases. But the top end, they're not really. So the people who earn the least are getting the wage increases. But at the margin on the overall numbers, you're not still not seeing wage increases coming through in the U.S. in any great deal. Not yet. No, you've confused me. So I'll... No, no. So it was, <laughs> I'm confused. It, it, you well, I'm saying it was a very good question. The I'm... other thing I would throw in right at the end of that is it's also to yes. do with the way that uh, the authorities, whether it be the reserve banks or the other fiscal authorities in whatever country it is, the way that they compose the inflation CPI yes. and also yes. core inflation. And they say, well, core inflation is this, but uh, CPI inflation is that, and therefore this, this, and this, and this is our monetary policy based on those two different measures. So that's also a factor, I think, Joanne. No, you're totally right, Lindsay. So I think in the US, and I could be wrong on this, but, but they look at the CPI basket and they, they take out um, – sort of transitory factors. So they take out oil prices. They go CPI X oil, CPI X food, mm. stuff that they're not in control of. And then they say to themselves, what they're trying to get back to is how much of that inflation basket is wage inflation, how much of it's housing price inflation, the things that they can control through monetary policy. Because let's face it, if, if the Fed raises interest rates because oil prices are rising, it's not going to stop inflation going up because it's completely out of their control. And all it can do in that scenario is be massively deflationary. Because then consumers are going to be hit on both counts, higher, higher cost of housing and higher cost of, um, well, actually not housing, because that's different in the States, but higher cost of credit and then higher cost of oil prices. So, again, you're right. Lots of countries have different CPI baskets and different ways of calculating interest rate policy. But my impression is the States do it ex-oil. So they do see that as something they keep an eye on. The, the thing that the Americans worry about the most is inflation expectations, and that's because then it becomes almost permanent. And in that case, inflation expectations are not hugely rising in the States. And if you look at inflation linkers, a lot of them are trading at negative numbers at the moment in the US. So people are not – that was going towards positive numbers beginning of the year. It's going now to negative numbers. The market's telling you it's not worried about inflation right now. However, should this oil price stay too high for too much longer, people are going to start getting nervous. Okay, uh, let's talk about other matters now and talk about what's going on in South Africa and talk about uh, vaccinations and that sort of thing because I went for my second vaccination, my second Pfizer jab uh, last night. I had a 7 o'clock appointment and uh, it was all very satisfactory. I sat down next to the nice young lady and she got her, um, she got her harpoon out and she said, <laughs> which arm would you like it in? And I said, I don't care. And of course, she was sitting to my left, so the easiest one for her to jab was my left shoulder stroke upper arm and um, of course I'm left-handed and I didn't realize that of course that would affect my day-to-day -day. my arm is, is practically numb because of this thing which is a small price to pay but the point is that in a long-winded way how are things going there have you had anything yet or do you oppose it just like you oppose masks <laughs> are we going back to the mask thing again Lindsay firstly I'm going to throw that back at you Single masks don't work. If you really want to be scared about stuff, wear, wear three masks. That, according to Fauci, works. But let, let's park that and move on. Um, the reality is, am I anti-vaxxer? Absolutely not. I, I think vax, I mean, I can't wait till South Africa can be vaccinated. And I listened to a fantastic discussion recently with a CEO of Discovery talking about how vaccines are working all around the world and how even this issue with the Delta variant, which if you look at the UK stats, the number of cases are rising exponentially, but people are not dying of it that have been vaccinated. So one would be a complete fool not to believe in the vaccines at the moment in South Africa, particularly for those at risk. And, you know, I'm not going to the whole children debate, but I think the vast majority of South Africans should have it. Back to your question, though, what, what's happening in South Africa? The rollout has been 
exceedingly bad so far. But the good news is that um, private medical aids have got involved now. And even though government is still sourcing the vaccines, the different um, sites that you can go to are both private and government. And from everything I'm hearing anecdotally, people are queuing up everywhere to get the vaccine. Again, based on the CEO from Discovery, he thinks that most of South Africans will be vaccinated by year end. So we've been a bit slow on the uptake, but he does believe by year end we're all going to be vaccinated, which is fantastic news. And whether it's Pfizer or AstraZeneca or J&J, it doesn't really matter. I think the vaccine rollout plan is finally coming together. We're still getting a very low take on from a number of people in the country. I think there's a a theory that vaccines don't work and for various other reasons. But hopefully over time, people will start to wake up and realize we we don't have a choice. And with our current um, situation in South Africa, with our numbers are going out of control, the vaccine will absolutely make a difference bringing those numbers down. Look, the reality is we're going to start seeing the R factor in different provinces start to fall anyway. We're already seeing the R factor starting to fall in Gauteng. So we're probably a week away from the peak in Gauteng's number. The problem is, if you look at the Western Cape, Limpopo, Mpumalanga, and different regions, the R factor is still rising. So we're not at the peak yet. But but there is hope, and the vaccine will work. Uh, and I feel at last, with private enterprise getting involved, that by year end, we should have vaccinated most of the population. So things are getting better. Okay. Have you been inoculated? Have you been vaccinated, Joanne? I'm still too young, <laughs> but my time is coming quite soon. So what was that? The line broke up there. <laughs> I'm not eligible yet, Lindsay, but but I'm very close to being eligible, which is great news. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Joanne, thank you very much for your insight on uh, two very, very difficult matters, three difficult matters, actually. That's Joanne Bainham, who's a portfolio manager at Sterling Private Wealth in the Western Cape of the Republic of South Africa. The views and opinions expressed in these podcasts are those of Lindsay Williams and various contributors and do not reflect the policy, position or opinion of any other agency, organization, employer, or company associated with strictlybusinesspodcast.com. Assumptions made on the analyses are not reflective of the position of any other entity other than the speaker or the author. And since we are critically thinking human beings, these views are always subject to change, revision, and rethinking at any time. Please do not hold us to them in perpetuity.